to another episode of the Aquatic Mentors podcast. I'm your host Katrina Van Eyck and in this episode I interview an industry professional who has been involved with swimming in some way since his childhood, covering many roles from swimmer, swim teacher, swim school owner, coach, state coach and now the acclaimed role of the Australian Dolphins head coach. So please extend a big welcome to the podcast for Rowan Taylor. Rowan has experienced the life of swimming in many different countries, including Hong Kong, USA and Australia. And while competing in a local swim meet in San Jose in California, Rowan competed against the 1984 Australian Olympic swim team. During this meet, Rowan's father introduced him to the coaching staff of the Australian swim team and they noticed his swimming talent and invited him to train at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra where he made several great connections with other swimmers. After returning to the US to finish school, Rowan took on a coaching role with a local swim team. He enjoyed coaching and wanted to continue to coach after finishing school, but realised to be able to support himself, he needed to work in the learn-to-swim environment. This time in learn-to-swim and coaching consecutively showed Rowan the importance of the learn-to-swim environment in making a great competitive swimmer. This is a value he still believes now and he shares inspiration on this topic during his interview. With this knowledge, Rowan moved back to Australia where he took on a few jobs in swim schools and clubs in both New South Wales and Victoria. He moved into the high-performance role with another Wadding Swimming Club in Victoria where he coached several Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games-level swimmers. Rowan's experience being involved with state and national teams gave him the opportunity to take on the role as state head coach for Victoria and Tasmania. While working in this role, Rowan took the opportunity to work with Australia's then head coach, Jaco Vaharan, as his 2IC. Earlier this year, Jaco made the decision to move back to Holland with his family and Rowan accepted the role of head coach for the Australian Dolphins swimming team and is now working towards the team's success at the Tokyo Olympics. In today's episode, Rowan shares some great insights into his work, as well as his thoughts on swimming in Australia and where he sees swimming moving to in the future. He also offers his inspiring thoughts for those swim schools and clubs still affected by COVID. Please share the points in Rowan's interview, which resonated with you on our Facebook page, Aquatic Mentors, and you will find contact details listed at the end of the show notes. If you want to share your aquatic journey, please contact me via my email, regionalswimclinics at outlook.com. That's regionalswimclinics at outlook.com. I'd love to share your journey in swimming and inspire my listeners to be able to develop and grow thanks to your journey. So let's dive in and find out more about Rowan's journey in swimming. Firstly, I wanted to say congratulations on getting your role, Rowan, um, as head coach for Australia. I think knowing a bit of what you've done in Victoria, you're perfect person for the role. And I'm really excited to see the future for swimming with you at the helm and to see what we can do in the sport. Uh, thanks, Katrina. Appreciate that. Yes, I'm very, very much looking forward to the opportunity in front of me. Yeah, very excited. 
So how did you start your journey in swimming? I started swimming when I lived as a young boy on the island of Nauru. My dad worked for the country. Phosphate mining was the main export. And we lived there and, you know, in a little island. I, we had a little backyard pool, I think. And as they said, fish to water. And that was kind of my first iteration. And then when we moved to Hong Kong when I was five, dad got a job in Hong Kong with a pharmaceutical company. And I would swim at the local country club and races. And yeah, just was good at it. When we moved across to America, I kind of kept the progression going through into club swimming and all the way through. When I was 15, I was 1984, just before my 16th birthday, the Australian Olympic team was visiting the Bay Area where I was living and training and competing in a local competition that I also swam at. And being an Australian citizen, my parents, my dad was like saddling up to all the Australians and chatting with them. And that's my son over there. He's an Australian. And I was actually, you know, a very successful age group swimmer. I, I'm tall and skinny and I was swimming fast. And one of the coaches took a liking to myself and my performances. And he was an AIS coach, John Rogers. And he said to my dad, how'd you like your son to come down to Canberra and swim at the AIS? Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this. So I ended up going down there between my year 11 and 12 in 1985 and swimming oh, six months I spent down there. I, I, I didn't really enjoy the experience as far as I was growing up in the state, but I met a lot of people and a lot of the people I met are really close friends now and colleagues, Ronnie McKeon, who Ron McKeon, Gary Barclay was swimming there, who ended up being my, my boss at, at Nutawadding and, and also the person that got me to carry and a number of other you know, current swimming people. So I kind of went back to the States, got into college, went swam in college, went, went to university, never really thought I'd coach. But when I got out of uni, just kind of to pass the time before I kind of entered the real world, I, I did some coaching in, in Southern California. And yeah, I really just fell in love with the coaching side of things. It was just comfortable being on pool deck. And I didn't think of it as a career, but uh, a person in passing from Australia had said to me, you know, you should go to Australia. They're going to have the Olympics down there. And, you know, learn to swim is a really big thing. And I thought, well, learn to swim. And I looked into it and I thought, well, if I can get a learn to swim school, then I could get enough money to, to basically keep coaching really just to keep that role up. Cause you don't get paid a lot, just straight up coaching at the time. So I, yeah, I made, I made some calls around to people like to places. And I spoke to a gentleman in New South Wales swimming who uh, Happened to be one of the guys I swam with at the AIS, a guy named Steve Bricknell, and he was a coaching director. And he he linked me up with Greg Hodge, who was coaching at Aquadot in Sydney. And Greg offered me a job over the phone. And I left everything in the States and flew down and started coaching at Aquadot, where I, I met Leanne Speechley, who's a coach in Sydney now, and we've been friends ever since, and, and a few other people there. But I reconnected with those swimmers that I met end of 84 and one of them was Ronnie McCain who was living down in Wollongong I went down visited him but I also went a little further south and found a local swim school that was looking for a coach and basically said can I can I get involved with the swim school part too I want to really get to know the, the industry and so I got hired by them and then at 12 months later they lost their lease to the council where they're having trouble with it I think they, they did they ended up maintaining it but in that time I was thinking what am I going to do and I I ended up befriending a guy that ran the outdoor pool in Nara, and we started a 
swim school out of the motel together wow. in a little 12, 12 meter pool. And that was in the mid nineties, uh, 95. And then ran that for five years, had some good coaching success there, uh, you know, getting athletes into teams and, and that kind of got me into the coaching space, but I wasn't really motivated to be honest. I wasn't still, I wasn't pursuing the, the hot performance space. So I was kind of like just taking it as they came. I was, it was more of the whole package, learn to swim, feeder system, financial support, coaching. And then as you get, you know, athletes doing well, it gives you access to, you get invited to things. I got invited to camps and then athletes and I get selected on teams and then it kind of snowballs from there. And it was 1999 and Don Talbot came and visited me and said, if you really want to be serious about your coaching, you need to get to a metropolitan city because um, I was in a little country town. So I was going to move up here to the Gold Coast and I had a couple job interviews. And then Gary Barclay rang me from Melbourne and said, look, I'm leaving Kerry. I'm going back. I think he went to Swimming Australia. And he said, I think this program would be perfect for you. It's an established program. And so I went down and I'm born in Melbourne. So I have rallies there and mom and dad were living in the States, but it just felt right. So I took the job there and we had an 18 month old and then we, we built a house and basically ran the carry program, which then we took on in 2006 as a license it from the school and still running it. My wife's still running it with Carl Wilson. So yeah, kind of, that's what really kind of ramped me into performance. That really was, I made the commitment to go in and be real targeted and getting performance athletes and working in that high performance space. But at no time did I disconnect myself from that whole learn to swim piece and club piece. I think that's critically important. So I kind of built a performance program within. And when I went to Nutawadding, uh, again, Gary came to me and said, would I be interested in running the performance program there? And I said, yeah. So I went over there in 2008 and basically was a, employed for that role to run the hot performance squad and work with Swimming Australia. And so that 16 years from 2000, 2016, I had a lot of access to the national team, had a lot of access to, to the Swimming Australia environment and leadership opportunities came. And it's probably through that experience that when I stopped coaching in 16 and took up the role with the Victorian Tassie State Technical League, that I really kind of thought, yeah, look, this is something I want to continue to pursue, but still maintaining my involvement through, well, my wife's involvement, but just generally the whole swimming community is important because I think, I mean, I can focus on high performance. That's, that's my role and I enjoy that, but I also love the whole industry because it gives so much to you. So, yeah, so when the opportunity to work with Jocko two years ago on the national team is kind of a 2IC role with him, I jumped at that because... I love being a part of the national team. It's just, you know, such a privilege to be around quality of people that are involved. And uh, yeah, just kind of COVID hit and uh, Jocko's family needed to go home and he was going to be like, stay by himself or go. And we had a conversation and he just said, no, look, I, I need to get home. And, mm. and then from there, it, it was a, a conversation with me about would I step into the role and and that was how it kind of came about. So, of course, I always had thoughts of, through my career of, you know, leadership, but within my own programs, I think being the head coach of, of the Australian swim team is, is you know, phenomenal privilege and covet the role. But I never set out at any given time, let's say, to be just targeting it. It was always something that I thought, if I'm the right person, 
and I feel I have the, the experiences and the relationship, I'll, I'll have a crack at it. If I didn't, I didn't kind of thing. I know it sounds a little bit lame, but no, you know what I mean? Like I, I feel I've got other things that, that I'm just as passionate about, but I'm all in on this now. Like this is, I'm all in to make, to make as much of a difference as I can and leave a legacy for, for the sport. So yeah, that's a long, long answer to your question, but that hopefully gives you, I'm a lifer in the sport, basically. That's, I could have just said that I've been in it all my whole life, but yeah, <laughs> I think there's been one year in my life where I didn't have anything to do with swimming. There was one year, my last year of uni, I didn't swim and I just was at school and being a college student and I didn't have anything to do with swimming, but everything before that and after that's been swimming. Yeah. Wow. What a heritage to have in a background in swimming that you've had and to understand the learn to swim side which feeds through because I think as a learn to swim for me that's something that I think we always hit against is that our coaches don't understand the learn to swim and what that brings so to have someone in such a, a big role as the head coach for Australia that understands the learn to swim and that pathway through I think that's absolutely fantastic and it's going to benefit swimming in Australia and learn to swim so much. I think for you, we need to sing the song of I've been everywhere, man. <laughs> it sounds like you have, and you've had such amazing experience in all areas, you know, USA swimming, so much history and to be able to learn from their, their college system and be able to implement that in what you do now. I think that's fantastic. Well, they, they're the standard bearers, and so they produce consistently. They have sustainable models that work, and I think what I know, what's been successful in Australia, it has the same ingredients that they have, and I think where our gaps exist are our competitions need to be more, more aligned to their kind of teams, competitions. We can get a lot more out of not only the development of our athletes, but the enjoyment and the fun. The reason other sports are attracting other athletes is I let my girls play basketball. I can be in and out of a basketball game within an hour and a half, warm up game home and been social, watch something and they've had fun. They've had a good workout. They've competed and they're gone and we're not, our day's not ruined. That's one real good opportunity for us as a sport. And I think the other piece, as you just mentioned, a hundred percent of our membership competitive members come from learn to swim a hundred percent. I mean, look, there might be people never went to learn to swim, become a competitive swimmer. That relationship between those, those two industries, we rely on it, but we rely yeah. on that progression. And then we need to be attractive and retain for the purposes. So when you run a program like I did, where the learn to swim and the squads program are all in one, you're constantly working on keeping those clients in to get them into squads and then using the club and competition to retain them as members of, of business clients. So that transition from learn to swim to the squads is critically important. The relationship between the teachers and the coaches and the, the swim school managers. And even though it's all under one business is still what's the expectation, the respect. I used to meet with the not awarding teachers. I don't know, once a year or I'd have a, a go into one of their meetings and just talk to them about the value that they have in, in our performances that everybody, every athlete they see swimming well on TV from not awarding is a product of their environment and them, whether they've taught them directly what they provide as a community, you know, when they're, when they're training hard and little kids are doing learn to swim at the other end of the pool or down in the other pool, they're part of the same community. It has to be that, that connection. So I think we can enhance that and that could help, 
Hey everybody. So there's there's some alignment pieces there, and, and really that's not obviously my my role as a head coach. My role as a head coach is the Olympic team and the and the performance athletes. So I'm just more talking about the community that is our sport from from a enjoyment piece, but from a practical piece, it's competition that's a huge opportunity for us because we have great training environments, great coaches, athletes are fantastic. We're clearly doing something right because we're we're pushing up against the Americans at times. We're, we're second and we'd like to get closer to them. So I look at opportunities in that space. Yeah, and it's amazing to have you thinking in that way that we're looking for the opportunities. We are pushing up against them. We're giving them a run for the money. And I think that's fantastic that you're able to do that but understand where that connection is. And I think this thing like something Jason Helwig said in his podcast interview is the same thing that everyone plays their role in the swimming journey and it's about connecting it through and knowing that what you put in as a swim teacher in the pool that understanding that the basics to them then follows through and we can as individuals we can promote our sport as well and we can connect make those connections for the kids that you know don't understand that competitive swimming's there or probably don't Mm. think there's such a commitment for it when you can do it for the love of it as well. Yeah. I think that a lot of learn to swim schools, I would suggest most of them do some sort of learn to swim carnival type activity where the kids come along and do some kickboard races or noodle races. That's one of the real attracting pieces of our sport in, in the early days where a kid wins, wins a race, they want more of it, right? So yeah. that's what kind of connects them up. So there needs to be a connection piece there, like a branding and, and that. but. But it's the same reason they leave our sport when we do exit surveys. They leave the sport because the competitions become so boring and long and onerous. <laughs> so we don't do it enough to keep them interested. We just we do these really kind of, you know, the clubs run meets and they make money and that's great. But it's not exciting, you know. So, th- again, I come back to that to me is a really good opportunity that we get innovative around competitions, but from little ones all the way through. Mm-hmm. And have a connection between the top and the bottom. And then that will really create people's interest. So, you know, like, I mean, you know, my daughter's played basketball. My littlest one's played since she could walk. Like, she's always been on the court with her sisters. And so when, the first time she could even join a domestic team when she was like five, she played her first mm-hmm. game. But I would take her to the WNBL games and she'd go meet the, the WNBL players. So that connection... It's the same, she's watching the same game in front of her, right? Yeah. It's, it's not complicated. Those are the things we need to take advantage of, that that is actually there. And how can we shine a spotlight on both of them together so they can see the, the similarities? Yeah, so. and I think that's something I think AFL do as well in regards to you play your kick and then you go through your local club and you can see that connection of you do this yeah. and then you become a AFL player. Now, I know AFL are run like a business, And I think that's something, you know, in some way we need to look at how we can do that, how we can get our performance athletes out in the public eye more often, not just before an Olympic, Um, to see their achievements. I think one thing, I'm born a Kiwi and we're just happy that our athletes get out there being such a small country. When I moved over to Australia when I was quite young and I looked at it, I thought, well, you don't know your athletes until about six months before the Olympics. And then if they don't perform well at the Olympics, they are just bashed and put down. And I think 
everything's critiqued, but I think you, why are they going through this? Why are we not just understanding where they're coming from, what they're doing, but also putting them out in the public eye that people can relate to them, normal kids in, you know, your country town can go, I can do that one day in some shape and form. Well, we have an OzKick program in the Learn to Swim schools. We already have it built in. Yeah. You know, it, it really, you're right. It's spot on. And it's making the awareness piece and also helping brand. I'll throw this at you, for instance, as a concept. Yep. If there was a naming for your Learn to Swim Carnival that was nationally named and promoted by Swimming Australia as a participant in junior racing, right? It's a junior racer meet or it's a, a first splash or something that connects to domestic comedy. And you get banners and posters to put up, come along to the junior racing competition that we're running. And then there's social media. And so you're, you're aligned with a national promotion of that kind of competition. So it's costing them nothing other than giving you product. All you're doing is attaching a, a national brand to what you're already doing. And then the sport then has to build the, the kind of the steps off the back of that to really kind of build the relationship it's already there within programs that are already set up with squads. So to me, it's that's the starting point. And then you've got a thousand swim schools around Australia who run monthly learn to swim carnivals that run it under the same name. And they piggyback off of the national social media space. Swimming Australia pushes it out there. And you see your swim school name next to the name of the competition. And you're a part of that community. It gives you, and you got a big sticker on your door, like the swim Australia swim school sticker, which says I'm, I've got quality here. You yeah. might have a sticker that says home of junior racing. People go, what's junior racing? Well, that's our Friday night swim carnivals that we run every term, you know, once a term, or whatever, oh, come along and have a look and you have fun and the kids do things. And, and then yeah. if you can get some senior athletes to promote it as well, like a billboard of Kate Campbell saying, oh, I started my career in junior racing. That's mm. it. There you go right away. Boom. Yeah. Let's get it happening. <laughs> well, We'll have to talk offline and get this. We will. We'll go offline. But yeah, no, yeah. I, I think I think to me that's how I see it. And you know, I'm, that's me thinking about the industry. But I look at it and I think, where can we make bigger inroads? My goal is to have more athletes pushing up to get on the national team. So to do that, we got to build the pyramid at the bottom. Yeah. So you got to have some awareness and understanding of like what can happen there. And you've got people already doing you're professionals in your industry doing what you do. Like there's, there's no need to build it. It's there. Just empower, yeah. invest and empower and let them benefit off the, the profile that is the Dolphins team and the Swimming Australia Olympic team year round, right? You know, yeah, seems easy. But anyway. It's well, it's all there. Play. It's just about connecting and connecting those dots. Yeah. I think if people just have to get together and, and do yeah. it and take the plunge and not wait for industry leaders and industry bodies to, Yeah, we can promote ourselves, we can put it out there, we can connect those dots. Absolutely. Good point. I like that. Right. Watch this space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what's the biggest lesson you've learned in your swimming journey so far or has there been a few? Oh, patience. I like that. Patience. I did a thing once where I asked the 10 Olympic coaches that, that were around me at the time because I wanted to compare because I was reflecting myself after I'd stopped coaching 
if I could get in a time machine and go back and stand next to myself the first day I was on pool deck, what piece of advice would I give myself, right? What would I would tell myself that I needed to, to have early in my piece? Yeah. And it was patience, right? When I spoke to these coaches, I asked them the same question and five out of 10 said patience. Wow. And they were probably the older coaches, you know, Michael Bowles, Chris Nesbitt, Vince Rowley. When I expanded on it, it was like patience with the athletes, patience with every everything you do. Just let it happen. And you're always in a hurry to get things done. But and I find that now, yeah, you just take your time a little bit more. And that's, that's kind of the worry that I had when I would be pushing, pushing, pushing was that I felt if I was more patient that I would miss opportunities or I'd, I'd lose my edge. I'd be less competitive or I'd be less sharp but it's not the case you're more sharp you're more calculated you're more purposeful with what you do it's like a a footy player who has they seem to have an extra second to make a decision on the field but you know when you're watching sport those people I feel like it's just you take that extra second to assess or to reflect on it so yeah patient yeah I really like that because it is something that we need to have. I mean, I know I'm only young and I and fresh into this, I suppose, being only in for five or six years as a swim teacher and a coach. But, you know, I look and I go, oh, look at what these people have done and oh, I need to be there. I need to be at their level. And my mentor, Joanne Love and Hayden Belcher, I look at them and I think, man, why can't I be up and doing what they're doing? And then I think, well, no, you know, I've got to realise that they've had longer in the system than me. I, I need to take that time, get the experience. And I think, you know, that's the same with the athletes. Your athletes are young kids. They're going to take that time to take it all in. They're not going to perform on cue. And we need to relax and to show them that we can be that that solid rock for them and have that patience. That's brilliant. Absolutely. Well done. Full of wisdom here. I'm loving it. (laughs) So with that and with the amazing steps that you've had in your journey, What's been the biggest highlight for you or has there been many highlights? Having this opportunity is, is one for sure. Standing on pool deck Monday night with Ariane Titmus and Mitch Larkin and co- having a conversation with them before they get into training and then watching them train or even support like a coach while going on deck. Last night I was with Richard Scarce and I was running his breaststroke group and with Jenna Strosh and being at these facilities with these great athletes and coaches and just kind of being able to be in their presence is a real highlight because, you know, I'm the biggest fan, I'm a coach, but I'm also one of the biggest fans of our sport. Like it's, you know, I I can't get enough of it, you know? So if I work backwards, a lot of my highlights have been watching athletes do really incredible things from themselves. So not necessarily like Liesl Jones winning Olympic gold medal and being a part of her journey and, and being there and actually being there, of course, that's, you know, a major highlight of my career, but it represents the type of highlights I have, which is you, you got an athlete or a bunch of athletes who are training and pursuing a goal and you're facilitating the environment and people and themselves and you're part of that leadership to lead them. And then when you see them nail it right then and there you go. So that's a highlight. And then yeah. I guess the people that I have friendships with, including you know, my ex-athletes that, you know, are great people and have families now and are doing well. Anytime I interact with them, that's a highlight. So 
Yeah, look, I've got to meet some great people. Couldn't say there's one specific, probably the types of highlights I'd suggest. Yeah, and I really like that because it's not personal highlights for you. You've seen other people achieve and achieve their goals in a sport that you love. To be able to take that as a highlight, that's amazing for everyone. Look, probably the one personal thing for me was getting life membership to ASCA. That was a real, that was something, and I'm very much a, I, don't, I kind of get a bit uncomfortable when I get like any sort of I'm okay with it now because I you know there for a while there I just felt really uncomfortable when I get people saying something good and but that was a real recognition from my peers of stuff that I you know felt I was really committed to the organization and, and work was on the board for many years and and was a chair for for about four years and that was really cool I, I really was really moved by that. So that's my one personal thing. Yeah, I love it. And it's diverse as well. So you've mentioned a few people in your journey so far, but has there been anyone that's played a big role or has there been a few people that have really stood out to get you to where you are now? Well, my wife is the number one influence on me. Being a partner of a high-performance coach is very difficult for that person, for the fact that they're giving you up to others because you have to be emotionally invested in your athletes and in your space. So there's that piece. And also, you know, like what I'm doing right now, living apart for four months, but we both have the same goals. She's always been right aligned with me. And so absolutely couldn't be a balanced human being with, with my life, my philosophy on empathy and my philosophy on relationships without that I'd say wouldn't be close so from a professional point of view you know I'd probably go back to my my coach John T. Skinner and again it's all a lot of it's on reflection so when I reflect I go why was he such a big impact on me well as a coach he was the most direct you knew where you stood and he'd say if you do that never were wondering what he was thinking and he's very direct and he educated you and he was very much about, he believed in you 100%, but to the point where he'd say, if you keep doing that, you won't be successful because of A, B, and C. So, you you know, like you you can be, but that's not going to help you. Yeah. And when I started coaching, I worked with a coach named David Salo, very successful coach, U.S. coach, coach Rebecca Sony and many other great American Olympians. And Dave is a very innovative, creative coach very much a coach coaches the athlete in front of him. So his style was like, you're all in with the athlete's goals. So you're, you're there. Your job is to keep them motivated, keep them excited. So his style of coaching was very unique. It's almost like he just goes with the flow, kind of. He doesn't do a lot of plan. Oh, he does, but he does. He pretends he doesn't, but he does. But, you know, whereas I'm a very meticulous planner and, right, come from that angle. So he yeah. gave me he gave me permission to just have some fun and be innovative on pool deck and, and be instinctive. When I came to Australia, Don Talbot, Bill Sweet, probably Bill Sweetenham primarily because I was in his youth catchment and Bill gave me a lot of opportunities and influenced my uh, leadership a lot and challenged me. And Don then, when I got into the senior teams, Don was very much uh, of a similar ilk where they they challenged me to be better than kind of like not letting you cruise, but they would give you the direct, it was always, it was always direct feedback. I always, I like that. Like I like being told 
that I need to improve. It doesn't phase me. It's like, I'd rather hear that than someone, you know, like just give me the, the real feedback. So, and then as I moved on my, on to actual coaching, you know, people like Ron McKeon, Alan Thompson, who was the head coach, major influences on me and my leadership style, my own management, myself, my coaching, and obviously sprinkled around that are other coaches that, you know, but they're probably the main ones. And the, the thing is, Jaunty, my first coach, swimming coach, came back into being a mentor for me when I was coaching Ellen Gandy, who was on the British Olympic team multiple times, but she was training with me in Melbourne. She lived in Melbourne, but was always going back. And Jaunty went to work for Great Britain Swimming for a period of time. So he flew down and spent time with me. I call him coach. If I introduced him to you, I'd say, this is my coach. He's always been my coach, always will be. That's the respect yeah. I have. And he's, when he walks in a room, it's like, I feel like I'm a swimmer again in, in awe of he talked to me a lot about my coaching style and my philosophies and really kind of bookended my learnings. So that, that's from a coaching perspective. But I think my one thing I'll say is I learned everything I, I learned as a coach off my athletes based on their responses to my coaching style, good and bad. So where I am today is based off of all the different athletes, elite or even development, you know, people who didn't, who no one would ever heard of that succeeded in their own rights because we worked well together, they showed me better ways of doing things and communicating and that. So I think they're probably at the centerpiece for me of everything, right? So they shaped my coaching style based on what worked and what didn't. Yeah. And the others around me just kind of enhanced, that probably helped me in the absorbing it and applying it too. Like, okay, I'm seeing this happening. What do I do now? Well, this means this and yeah. Yeah, it's an yeah. ongoing learning. My father told me from a very young age that to be successful, I had to surround myself with people, sphere of influence, people who would tell me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted. And he said, if you have people that you tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, then they're surely going to help guide you. But if you surround yourself with yes people or tell them how oh, you're great, then you're never going to, you're going to be blind to all the things that you need to see. And I think that's the, that's the challenge for coaches is to be vulnerable, right? Be a vulnerable person. Allow yourself to not know everything and, and be comfortable with that. Like, that's okay. Like, I don't know everything. I'm curious. I want to know. But so that's those people I talked about were probably those were the biggest things. They all held me totally accountable when I needed to be. And now I'm in the sphere of influence for others. So I, I've earned the right to be in a circle around others who I, I now have to pay that back. So there's no point in me telling someone how good they're doing when I know that when I think that they need to hear something, I just tell them, it's just how you deliver it. You know, Don Talbot and Bill Sweetnam used to deliver it a lot differently than the modern day delivery. You know, they used to just, Don used to just poke you in the chest. This is, you go, all right. So. <laughs> Not so sugar-coated as we do a bit more now. No, no. <laughs> And that's it. And I love, wow, there's so many great points of wisdom out of your answer then. Just the fact that you've developed this on reflection, looking back. I think we always need to look back at what we've done and learn from what we've done, learn from our past, but learn from our failures as well to be able to change our future. To see, and really that's fantastic what you said about your wife and having that rock with you and that pillar to be able to learn and develop and it is, it's about, you know, you give your swimmers and other coaches and other people in the industry your 
whole emotion and you come home and sometimes you don't have anything left for your family. So for her and your kids to be able to, you know, learn from that, but to be able to understand that as well is amazing. And to then have coaches around you that have given you what you said, that you needed to know those answers and you needed to be told that, not sugarcoated it or told you just whatever they think you needed to hear because you're not going to learn if you don't know or if you don't understand and it's not pointed out. I think that's something I've learned to be able to develop that you need to learn from others, but you need to you need to be told specifically where things can improve and what you can yeah. The, the most important, as important as that group is Lee Nugent. So Nugget, you're absolutely, he's been there for me and been with me and been a challenging and supportive of me exactly that way since I first met him. And then obviously when he became youth coach, he took Bill's role over. Nugget's one of the most, well, he's got the highest level of integrity than anyone I know. He's just a, a great human being, but he's also very honest and direct. And, and now he's works with me now and so right now he's probably the person that's the most influential on me within and Jocko was as well uh, who's now gone but but I still communicate with him but you know Nugget's probably the person that right now is is closest to me in that advisory space so I know if I ring him and tell him something or ask him something I'm going to get a really unfiltered opinion or point of view which is great so yeah he sits in right up there and more recently, probably the most influential on me. Yeah. And it's amazing how, you know, someone who can be connected with you younger and when you're first coming out coaching, how then can come back and play a big role later on as well. Yeah. And then for you to be able to offer that back, I've always said that your biggest thank you to a mentor is to be able to give what they've given you onto someone else yeah. to be able to pass that on. Absolutely. And we're in good hands if we've got someone like you at the top and then nugget. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so what advice would you give to a new swim coach and teacher coming into the industry? Probably think the most important advice is to is to have a continual learning attitude. Be vulnerable, like want to learn more. Be confident in what you do, but also be in the pursuit of continually improving yourself your technical and tactical approach, your communication, your listening, all the different things that come with being a good influencer on people and their their skills. So I think, you know, it's that uh, healthy appetite to learning is really important. I think as operators of swim schools and coach, you know, operators, head coaches and that who have staff underneath, it's creating that learning environment so that it's, that people feel comfortable and it's part of what they do. And it's not like sit down classroom. Let me tell you stories. It's like create different environments where it's, it's conversational or it's interactive in a, through different mediums, bring in people to talk. That's one big thing I used to do was bring in somebody to deliver a message that I felt like there's so many messages coming from me. People just tune out. So you bring, you get invite somebody in to talk to the group about something that you know is really important, but bringing them in, brings their attention so I think whether it's yourself learning or you're facilitating greater learning you're doing that as well you're participating so that's probably the piece of advice I give yeah and that's perfect and it's something that a lot of my interview 
guests have said because it is you know you always need to be developing and relearning and learning new things and getting new niches and like you said if you're a manager to be able to bring someone in who can guest speak about a topic you may even know about just makes a difference people are more willing to learn yep that's brilliant so for you what does swimming look like in the future so right now the very short term is just getting an olympic team selected and on the plane healthy and to a competition and to perform that in itself is like a very small five-week window six-week window where we come together everything before that is is about trying to ensure that their training environments, their coaching, the facility space, the athletes have all the resources they need, which is going well at the moment, so that they're best prepared. So what we do is is facilitate. So really the training environment, which includes competition. So really trying to find ways to create, provide competition in a way that's similar to what they're normally used to. So we're just trying to keep things normal. Beyond 2021, touched on a few of those things here i think domestic competition our ability to have new types of competitions for our athletes that will be from the top all the way down where there's you know maybe a whole new competition string of activities that are let's call it the 2020 version of swimming right let's just coin it that way yeah um that's something that i think would be great to see i think for me with the national team you know continuing to bring them together for camps bringing them together more often, making sure that we've got, we're not just meeting for that five or six weeks a year. We've actually got some connectivity. And then those underpinning pathways that fit with that are your kind of state-based programs that are, you got your club and then your states and then your nationals. Those those state-based programs and national youth programs intersect and have relationships with them around camps and competitions. So I think enhancing camps and competition environments will actually trickle down on on the industry the competition piece especially but i do think like you know like what is a jx clinic jx clinic is a camp for little kids to go and be around others like these types of things bring the community together and create you know they get to see others so more of those types of things with with more exciting competition to me is is what i see the sports opportunity Yeah, and that's perfect. I mean, getting that out there, doing different competitions and camps differently. I think every sport and every industry needs a bit of a shake-up every now and then, and COVID's offered us that. So to be able to change it and learn from it is going to be great for the industry. Yeah, I think it's just an evolution, really. I think it's evolving into what works best, you know, like anything. You know, if if you're running a restaurant and you have certain items on the menu that same old, same old. Yeah, you're going to have the same type, same people eat the same items. But if you want to attract new people or you want to give variety, you introduce a new item on the menu. And that item then can become a regular thing or it's or what it does is it just shows that in rotating new items through the menu actually keeps customers coming back because they want to try things. And all of a sudden you build your customer base. I think we look at it like that. We can do that. And I think that doesn't mean that traditional competitions don't have a place because they do. The, you know, your nationals, your states and they absolutely do, but maybe they become kind of one of the off-the-shelf swimming products that people or people prefer that one, great, but there's other ones that we can bring new people into it and they can mix and match. So I think for me, it's introducing new things to enhance what we do best. Yeah, and that is a good point, enhancing what we do by introducing new products, giving people choice. 
I mean, they may, for high performance, those competitions are things that are integral for what they do. But if someone doesn't want to get to high performance or just wants to take part in the, com- the joy of competing, they have other options as well. That's right. And, you know, I look at basketball again as one example. You have your domestic teams that play on Saturdays and you have your rep ball on Friday nights. And my daughters play both, but a lot of the girls that just played domestic because that was enough for them. They wanted to have a run around and shoot. They're good enough to play rep, but they just weren't interested but there was a place yeah. for them. It wasn't one or the, or the other. And so, you know, you, you looked at it and you thought, okay, well, and I think my older daughter stopped playing rep and started playing, just played domestic for, for a couple of years because she enjoyed being with her friends and shooting the ball, but she didn't want to do all the travel and whatever else went on with, with the rep ball. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There's an option for everyone. So my last question is how can we as an individual or as an industry, promote and develop learn to swim and competitive swimming to encourage more participants, but to do it with less funding? Ooh. Well, I, I think collaborating with the sport, collaborating with the learn to swim industry and creating more awareness, like as a collaborative group, can have greater impact. So that doesn't cost a lot of money. That's just a willingness to redirect the emphasis on Let's enhance, let's shine the spotlight on these two and how they relate, their relationship. I think just the internal focuses of introducing things that that are new that can link, you know, like these competitions that we talked about, like little fun little teams competitions between swim schools, for instance. You know, why not have a little race day where you, you host it at your pool and have little races and the clubs can come along and they can run it for you because that's their opportunity to meet new members potentially you know that's what Auskick does the local footy club runs the Auskick and then they look for new members I mean it's just a more collaborative approach I think it's a win-win really it is because you might have a client who's ready to, to, to stop going to learn to swim because it's just become monotonous but then all of a sudden there's a new little thing introduced and little Johnny or Mary want to go God, I want to go back to that it was so fun well mom and dad are taking them because the kids enjoy it that's what drives it and they see improvement. That's probably, in short, what I what I think. I think that's something that's been the topic of this the whole interview is seeing improvement, but offering opportunities and connecting and highlighting both sides of the industry and that we can do that ourselves as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely great talking to you and there's been so many words in there that I think people are really going to connect with and use to heighten the industry and bring swimming into a new revolution after COVID? Well, I think, you know, my message to everybody is that we have a a fantastic industry of of people who are such quality human beings and what what you do. And community knows that. They miss it. They're looking forward to getting back. And it's an opportunity to refresh and, and reset. So, you know, if you haven't reflected already, reflect on what you can do better, what you can improve, and how you, you know, manage yourselves better and so that you're fresh and inspiring because I think this break is, will give everybody that opportunity to and, and work together. I think that's the other thing I've seen is a lot more collaboration with the industry and, and the coaches is everybody seems to be closer because there's a lot more engagement. So maintain that, like maintain that's really important. Yeah, that's a good point. We've come together. It's benefited us so far, so keep it going. And Absolutely, yeah. 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 
But I really appreciate it, Katrina. It's been fantastic. Appreciate the opportunity to speak and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing. Thank you so much. It's been great to be able to share this with you and get your insights out of it. So thank you for taking the time. Easy.